Well, as we've worked our way through the service this morning and gathered together, we've been reminded again and again that we live in a fallen world, and not just a fallen world that affects ourselves, but that affects other our relationships with others. We've thought about our own. As we opened the service, we sang about our own commandment breaking. We were reminded of the shootings taking place in our own city. We were reminded of the needs of the VBS coming up and we were reminded again of our brother Wesley's ongoing trials. I mean, we live in a very broken world, and there's one reason for it, and that's human sin. And there's one solution to it, and that's the grace of God. And so that's why we're going to spend the next five weeks, Lord willing, as your pastors walk you through a series of sermons on the doctrines of grace in the Gospel of John. You may be wondering why this series, and there's really three reasons. The first is commemoration. Back in October of 2017, we did a similar series recognizing another significant historical event, namely the starting of the Protestant Reformation in 1517, and we preached a series of sermons on the alones of the Reformation, faith alone and grace alone and such. And so we're going to come back to a similar historical milestone, namely the 400-year anniversary of the Canons of Dort. If you don't know what those are, I'm going to explain them in a minute. But there is a significant confession of faith that came out at the end of, in, in May, May of 1619, which we have just crossed the 400-year threshold for. So that's in part why we're doing it, uh, recognizing God's grace and the historical milestone that came 400 years ago. Second reason is explanation. In our, in our, actually, in our church constitution, which I know you do your devotions in every single week, but I'll remind you. Um, in Article 4 of our Constitution, under Confessions, we have the following statement. Alongside our affirmation of the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, the Abstract of Principles, and the Baptist Faith and Message of 2000, we state, we accept the canons of Dortrecht as an excellent expression of the teaching of the Word of God. We find them to be an aid in controversy, a confirmation in faith, a means of edification in righteousness, and a basis for church unity. We acknowledge, however, the inerrant scriptures to be the supreme authority in all matters of faith, morals, and order, end quote. So we've got this confession in our Constitution. It would help to know what it is. And then finally, celebration. We're not just commemorating a historical milestone or explaining an ancient doctrinal statement, but rather celebrating the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. It's not just about some academic exercise to try to understand doctrine. No, it's try to, trying to understand exactly what our brother Jim just reminded us of. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, what is that grace? How does it appear to us? How does it come to us? And that's what we're going to talk about these next five weeks. Before we get into the first point of grace, I want to set us up and give us some historical context and talk a little bit about what this Canons of Dort is. All right, first of all, cannons of Dort have nothing to do with warfare. It doesn't have to do with a physical cannon being shot anywhere. That's typically how we think about cannons. Cannons, rather, in Old English, refer to standards or doctrines that are stated and written down. So when we're talking about the cannons of Dort, we're talking about the, standard, the doctrinal standards that came out of a meeting in the city of Dort in the Netherlands. It was the, full, the full name was Dortrecht, but it's become known as Dort. And the controversy was between what was known as Arminianism and Calvinism that arose in Holland in the early 1600s. The founder of the Arminian party was a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. The people who followed him were known as Arminians, and he lived from 1560 to 1609. And he studied in Geneva, which was a Reformation stronghold, under Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza, and became a professor of theology at the University of Leiden in 1603. He was a full-bore Calvinist, one who, was, who, who followed in the Reformed tradition of his predecessors. However, gradually, Arminius came to reject certain Reformed teachings. The controversy spread all over Holland through the followers of Arminius, who in the following years following his death in 1609, drew up their creed in what was called Five Articles, and they laid them before the state authorities of Holland in 1610 that was, that was under the name of the Remonstrance, or the Five Articles of the Remonstrance, signed by 46 different ministers. 
And this growing theological controversy placed quite a bit of stress on Dutch society at that time, because if you'll remember, Dutch society was intertwined with the Reformed faith. It wasn't just in, a, in the church, it was all over society, it had permeated government, and so it was a significant uh, theological controversy, not just for the people, but for the entire country as well. With this division in the church became so great that a civil war in the Netherlands became a very real possibility. Only the change in the civil government and the call of the National Synod of the Dutch Reformed Church to meet in the port city of Dortrecht would prevent the war, and that's exactly what they did. So the official Reformed response from the Synod of Dort was held November 13, 1618 to May 29, 1619, wrapped up just a few days ago, 400 years ago. And they met to consider these five articles. There were 84 members and 18 secular commissioners. The synod wrote what has come to be known as the Canons of Dort. They state the five points of Calvinism in response to the five articles of the Arminian Remonstrance. So the so-called five points that you may have heard of were not chosen by the Calvinists as a summary of their teaching. Rather, they emerged as a response to the Arminians who chose these five points to disagree with. And somewhere along the line, nobody knows quite for sure when, the five points came to be summarized in English under the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. It starts with man in need of salvation, total depravity, which is what we're going to consider this morning, and then gives, in the order of their occurrence, the steps God takes to save his people by grace. He elects, unconditional election, and then he sends Jesus to atone for their sins, namely limited atonement or particular redemption or definite atonement. It's called different things. And then he irresistibly draws his people to faith, something we know as irresistible grace, and then finally causes them to persevere until the end, perseverance of the saints. Lest we think this was some passionless academic exercise, it would be helpful for you to know that before the Senate of Dort conducted its business, each member took a solemn oath that said the following, Quote, I will only aim at the glory of God, the peace of the church, and especially the preservation of the purity of doctrine. And then they ended with this prayer, so help me my Savior Jesus Christ, I ask you to assist me by your Holy Spirit. They were deeply devotional. This was not an, this was not an abject academic exercise. At its very heart, this controversy was about grace. It was about letting God's grace be God's grace. In all its supernatural, unilateral, affecting, redeeming, and resurrecting power. It was about letting God's grace be grace with all its glory to our sovereign God, with all of its offense to our human pride, and with all of its comfort to weary souls who need grace. That's what it was about. That's what Dort wanted to settle. It, and you know why? It's because grace and grace alone gives life. Nothing else gives life. Now let me say on the front end of this series, I believe the doctrines of grace that we will teach are biblical. And, so, and Jesus believed them, and so should we. However, I also believe that believing the doctrines of grace should make God's people gracious. Some of God's people who love to love the doctrines of grace have not adequately grown in showing grace. We have not become gracious, kind, tender, and compassionate as a result. And that can only mean one, great, one thing. We don't believe the doctrines of grace. A stubborn, arrogant, and perpetually argumentative Calvinist is not a biblical Christian, but a Pharisee with a fresh coat of paint. We don't need less Calvinism. We need real Calvinism, the kind that resides in our hearts and not just our heads and makes us the kind of gracious people that our gracious God is. Listen, a humble Arminian can be a good Christian, 
There are many, 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 many of God's people that are. But a proud Calvinist can't be a good Christian or a good Calvinist. A heart at rest in our gracious Lord of glory, coupled with a heart that is simultaneously at peace with other Christians who disagree with us, that's the heart of the true Calvinist. I heard a story this week about when the 18th century preacher George Whitfield, a vibrant Calvinist, was asked if he thought that he would see the founder of the Methodists and a well-known Arminian, John Wesley, in heaven, who was his friend. Whitfield's answer, no, I don't think we will. Shocking, huh? But he wasn't done. George hadn't finished. He said he wouldn't see John Wesley in heaven, he added, because, quote, Mr. Wesley will be so near the throne and I will be so far in the back that I not be able to see him. Here is a man that he had doctrinal differences with but he recognized whose godliness and love for Christ exceeded his own. And if you've never met that, you need to get out more. (laughs) Spurgeon, commenting on the story, said, quote, As I read such remarks made by Mr. Whitfield, I have said to myself, By this I know as a Christian that he must be a Christian. For I saw that he loved his brother Wesley even while he so earnestly differed from him on certain points of doctrine. Yes, dear brethren, if we cannot differ and yet love one another, if we cannot allow each other to go his own way in the service of God and to have the liberty of working after his own fashion, if we cannot do that, we all fail to convince our fellow Christians that we ourselves are Christians, end quote. Spurgeon and Whitfield were not weak Calvinists. They were real Calvinists, and they were meek Calvinists, which is the only kind of true Calvinists there are. They didn't belittle the doctrines of grace, but they also didn't belittle the body of Christ and beat up on their brothers and sisters who didn't agree with them. May we go and do likewise. So what exactly will help us do that? What will help us navigate the doctrines of grace graciously? Well, our Calvinism must be all about Christ. Our doctrines of grace must lead us to him who is full of grace. The five points, brothers and sisters, never forget this, The five points are meant to be five pointers to Jesus. They point us to a person. This is why we're preaching this series on the doctrines of grace from the lips of our Lord. Because the aroma of the tulip is the aroma of Christ. Spurgeon again, quote, How do I love the the doctrines of grace when they are taken in connection with Christ? Some people preach the Calvinistic points without Jesus, but what hard, dry, marrowless preaching that is. Let every believer remember he does not get these doctrines as he should get them unless he receives them from Christ. End quote. Mr. Spurgeon has the pulpit, he's right, and he will lead us forward as we take these doctrines from the very lips of our Savior. So now we're going to spend the rest of this morning unpacking five passages from the Gospel of John and the words of our Savior that show why we need a gracious salvation. Why salvation can only and exclusively come to us freely. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it through our own work and effort. We can't contribute anything to it. Why is it that grace and grace alone must be what saves us? We're going to answer that question. We're also going to answer this question in doing so. What is our spiritual condition before we come to Christ? That's the question we want to answer this morning. What is our spiritual condition before we come to Christ? And we describe this condition as total depravity. Our Lord summarizes this doctrine in one sentence in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's it in a sentence. Let's pray. That's it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the gracious intervention of God, we can do nothing. Not a little bit. Nothing. Sin has so corrupted and disordered the human race that unless God intervenes in a person's life in a saving act of grace, he or she will never repent of sin or believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This does not mean, let me be clear here, 
This does not mean that before we come to Christ, every human being is as evil as they possibly could be. It doesn't mean we're all little Hitlers that promote genocide and consign human beings to gas chambers. It does mean our depravity, that is our sinfulness, is total. That is, it affects every part of our humanity. It affects our mind. It affects our will. It affects our affections. It affects our imaginations. And it renders us morally incapable of coming to Christ on our own apart from God's gracious intervention in our lives. That's all it means. So let me repeat that one more time. Total depravity does not mean that everyone is as evil as they possibly could be. It means that sin so affects us in our totality that our mind, will, affections, imaginations, and every part of our humanity has, is rendered morally incapable of coming to Christ on our own apart from God's gracious intervention in our lives. It's like a cyanide capsule getting dropped in water. A glass of water that contains maybe only a drop of a deadly poison is not as bad as a one that contains 10 drops of deadly poison, but that water is totally ruined by that one drop. That's total depravity. It's not talking about who has one drop and who has 10 drops. It's that the totality of this water had it a drop of cyanide in it would be totally affected, and I would die if I drank it, which I'm hoping Jim didn't do this morning. We shall see, brother. So we are not saying that every human is totally saturated with sin, but we are saying that sin is totally distributed through every component of human nature. Another example or illustration, take a sponge. If you dip a sponge all the way down into a, 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 a bucket of vinegar and you squeeze it and let the sponge absorb it, the sponge would be totally saturated. That is, the sponge would be so full of vinegar that it could not hold anymore. But if you remove the sponge and squeeze it out, no matter how hard we squeezed, every bit of the sponge would still be damp with vinegar. And if we cut off any part of the sponge, it would still be damp with vinegar, smelling like vinegar. And similarly, while no human is completely saturated with sin, every component of human nature has been adversely affected by it. So while for sure, praise God, we are not all wicked despots who are throwing bodies into the furnace, we do throw the reputations of others into the furnace of slander. We talk behind each other's backs and defame our neighbors. We take disturbing delight in others' failures. The depravity that mas massacres reputations is the same depravity that slays bodies. It's no different. So we're going to spend the rest of our sermon this morning looking at five aspects of our depravity from the lips of our Lord in the Gospel of John. We're getting in an elevator, and it's going down. Down, 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 down. It paints a horrendous picture of who we are before we come to Christ, and it necessitates the very grace that we're going to celebrate the next four weeks. Here are those five, one at a time. Number one, according to Jesus, before coming to him, we are first spiritually dull. We're spiritually dull. Now, this dullness manifests itself in two ways. It manifests itself in spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. We are blind and deaf spiritually, not physically, but spiritually. So we don't just speak of depravity in terms of operational blindness or operational badness, but spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. Our root problem is not that we break God's commandments. Our root problem is that we have no interest in God and don't even know why and don't even think about him by nature. And even if people were inclined to read the Bible, they could spend their whole lives doing so and remain blind to Christ. Many have. So let's look at John chapter 1 and hear this from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light, referring to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Think about that. You've got the true light, 
the, the Son of God coming into the world. He gives light to everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Jesus made the very people he was walking in front of as he came into the world. And yet, the world did not know him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, his own people, the people of Israel, the ones who had been waiting for generation after generation after generation. Who's the Messiah going to be? Who's the long-promised Redeemer that's going to finally deliver us, who's finally going to set up God's kingdom? He came to them, and what happened? They did not receive him. That, my friends, is spiritual dullness. That is blindness. That is deafness. The reality is, is that we do not, we cannot, we will not recognize Jesus as the Son of God apart from the life-giving activity of God to remove our blindness and our deafness. Humanity, by nature, cannot see the truth of Christ in its depraved condition. This evolved, now there is a, there is, this is not an issue of permission. This is not an issue of whether or not they were permitted to see Christ. Of course they were. He was right there. He came into the world. Everyone is permitted to see him. Everyone can talk to him. Everyone can know him, who he is. But why aren't they? The answer is they don't have the ability to, morally speaking. They have physical eyesight. They have physical ears, but they have no moral ability to do it because of their sin. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verses 43 and 47. Here Jesus explains why, in fact, we are so spiritually dull. John chapter 8 and verse 43. We read from Jesus, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Why does Jesus say they're dull? He says, you're not of God. God would have to make this happen. And the reason why you don't see me or believe me is because you're not of God. Natural man cannot hear with understanding the free call of the gospel to believe and repent. And although we can physically hear it, only the Holy Spirit can give us the proper understanding. John chapter 12 and verse 37, Jesus says as much when he says, John chapter 12 verse 37, though he had done so many things before them, they did not believe in him. Here's why, verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Jesus says they're unbelieving because they're spiritually hard. They're spiritually blind. They don't understand. They can't hear. So that's the first reason we're spiritually dull. Secondly, we're spiritually defiant. We are spiritually defiant. That is, we're not just dull to it. We're resistant to it. Even if we had some inclination to do it and listen to Jesus and hear from Jesus, we would resist him by nature. Again, John chapter 3, some of the words that Jim read for us, at the beginning of the sermon, John chapter 3 and verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Say, I don't want to come to Jesus. It's going to be exposed how sinful I am. I don't want anything to do with that. He makes me feel guilty. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Now, what separates those who come to the light and those who remain in darkness? Well it, says, well, it says here, well, the reason why they remain in darkness is because their works are evil. They don't want to come. Well, why? But why don't they want to come? Look at verse 21. Everyone who comes to the light 
does so so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a God working behind the people who are coming into the light. And those who aren't manifest that they are still in their sin. We also see this in John chapter 15 and verse 18 where Jesus is describing why the people are hating him. John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Well, why do they hate you, Jesus? You're a good guy. You do nice things for people. Look at verse 24 and 25. If I had done so, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That is a stinging indictment of spiritual defiance. There was no reason that Jesus should have been crucified. It was the grossest injustice that has ever taken place on this planet. And yet human beings made of the same stuff we are put the Son of God to death. That's what we do when the Son of God shows up. And don't say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would have. I would have too. I would have been front row in the mob squad cheering, crucify him. Get him out of my life. I don't like it. I don't like the things he says. I don't like the claims he makes. I don't want anything to do with him. But just to be clear, not everyone's defiance manifests manifests itself that way. Not everybody's shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Defiance can take the form of both active rebellion and passive indifference. They're made of the same stuff. You can be spiritually defiant in two ways. I don't care, or I care so much I want him dead. Both are, man, both are made of the same stuff. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, former atheist C.S. Lewis offers a profound insight into the psychological engine that pulls the entire train of human experience. He says, quote, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God with which to make himself happy. That's the story of human history. Our sinful condition is the product of a happiness quest gone wrong. In our sinfulness, God is a boring obstacle to our joy, and that creates hell on earth. The greatest hazard, brothers and sisters, of the human condition is not intellectual atheism, denying that God exists. Our most desperate problem is affectional atheism, refusing to believe God is the object of our greatest and most enduring happiness and pleasure. The problem with the world is not the presence of intellectual atheists, but the pervasiveness of fallen hearts who have wandered away from the living God to find satisfaction elsewhere. We are born with the temptation to seek joy outside of God, and this affliction affects every single one of us. One more thing about spiritual defiance. Our defiance is also seen in seeking to live a good life apart from God. It's not just in doing the bad things that God forbids. It's also doing the good things that God commands without God. Just being a good person. Being a good person is spiritually defiant to God. Do you understand that? When you are trying to be a good person, you are defying God. You're saying, I don't need you, or I just need some help from you, but I don't need grace. I don't need salvation Listen to Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's a new category of thinking about sin. Sometimes we just think about sin as disobeying the commands, and surely that's part of it. But this says, whenever, whatever we do that's not rooted from a heart trusting in God, looking to God, resting in God, is sin. John Piper comments on this verse. If someone is restrained from performing evil acts by motives that are not owing to his glad submission to God, then even his virtue is evil. 
This is a radical indictment of all natural virtue that does not flow from a heart humbly relying on God's grace. Of course, many of these acts which flow from inward belief conform outwardly to the revealed will of God. For example, obeying parents or telling the truth, but they do not conform to God's perfect will because of that mere outward conformity. Let all things be done in love, the apostle says, but love is the fruit of faith, Galatians 5, 6, 1 Timothy 1, 5. Therefore, many outwardly good acts come from hearts without Christ-exalting face and therefore without love and therefore without conformity to God's command and therefore are sinful. Piper concludes, if a king teaches his subjects how to fight well and then those subjects rebel against their king and use the very skill he taught them to resist him, then even those skills, as excellent and amazingly good as they are, become evil. And that's what's happening with our goodness by nature. We've taken the good things that God has given us and used them outside of relationship to him. That's why we're spiritually defiant. Number three, we are spiritually dominated. We are spiritually dominated. We are in both bondage to our sin and bondage to Satan. Look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Verse verse 44 and 45 of the same chapter, Jesus says again, You are of your father the devil. And your, father is to, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So Jesus says here we're doubly trapped. We are doubly dominated. We're not just spiritually dull and spiritually defiant. We're spiritually dominated. We are, we are captive to sin and Satan apart from God's divine intervention. This, result, this bondage results in personal tragedy all around us. By sinning, brothers and sisters, humanity is diminished. Sin distorts us. It steals our identity. We are always becoming what we worship. So when we are in bondage to sin and Satan, we are left in the tomb and are always becoming our untrue selves. And this tragic degeneration of ourselves goes almost unnoticed. Soren Kierkegaard, philosopher commenting on this, says the greatest hazard of all, losing the self, can occur very quietly in the world as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any other loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, is sure to be noticed, but not the loss of self. That can go outside of our radar because we're in bondage. We don't even realize what we're doing to ourselves. It's because our bondage manifests itself in thinking that we're free by nature. By nature, what we call freedom, that is individual autonomy apart from God, just living my life the way I want to live it, so misshapes our souls that it's like drugs and how they alter the face of a meth addict. But unlike a drug-ravaged face whose degeneration can be seen by time-lapsed photos, we don't see the dramatic change to our souls. The greatest manifestation, brothers and sisters, of humanity's bondage is humanity's belief that they're free. That they're free to do whatever they want without any kind of consequences. I'm not talking about civil consequences. I'm talking about spiritual consequences. We're spiritually dominated by nature. Number four, we're spiritually desperate. We're spiritually desperate. John chapter 6, here's the way Jesus describes our desperation. John chapter 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Look at verse 65 where Jesus says something very similar. John 6, 65, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by my Father. That's our desperation. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does that mean? It's granted by God the Father to come. This is our desperate spiritual condition, naturally. Tony Rinke says, 
We are dying sinners in desperate need of spiritual double bypass surgery, but we spend our pocket change on double cheeseburgers. We get happy again with a momentary food buzz, but the temporary thrill is slowly killing us. Our self-undoing goes unnoticed because it's socially accepted and celebrated, but behind all of our sin is a corrupt heart lusting after only lusting after not only what ignores God, but what ultimately ruins our joy. And in our chosen self-destruction, we would have it no other way. That's our sad condition. We want it that way. Take you back to a movie from my teenage years, Terminator 2. Let's go back there for a second. Arnold Schwarzenegger, for those of you more cultured than me and don't know anything about this, plays an android that's sent from the future to protect a young boy named John Connor from a cyborg assassin who wants to kill John before he can lead humanity against the world-destroying Skynet AI. Stay with me. <laughs> One day, as John watches children fighting and the Terminator's standing there next to him, and he's watching these children fighting on the playground, and they're yelling at each other, and he asks the Terminator... We're not going to make it, are we? People, I mean. And the Terminator responds, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. That's total depravity, friends. This is our depravity. We love what destroys us. And we are blind and dead to what satisfies us. Oh, sure, we get the temporary thrills, no doubt. We get those. There's pleasure in sin, for sure. We wouldn't do it otherwise. But it's not what ultimately satisfies us. And here's the reality, is that each of us are called to get our life in order, and we're absolutely powerless to do it. We can do nothing about it. We're spiritually desperate. Finally, fifthly, we are spiritually doomed. We're spiritually doomed. As if dullness... And defiance and desperation and domination weren't enough. Look at John chapter 3 again and verses 16 through 18. Verse 16 is a wonderful promise. You know it well, but do you know the verses that come after it? John chapter 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Perish is an important word there as part of John 3 16. It's the only reason that makes John 3.16 good news is that we are doomed. We are going to perish, which doesn't just mean we are going to die. It means we are going to be judged by God and sentenced to an eternity in hell. That's what perish is. But look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We say, oh, that's such a good verse. And it is a great verse. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world to save the world. But have you ever asked the question, why didn't God have to send his son into the world to condemn the world? Verse 18 answers it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever is not believed is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Why didn't God have to send Jesus into the world, condemn the world? The world was already condemned. We were already condemned. We were already doomed. And this is why verse 36 is so horrifying. Look at the words of verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not presently trusting in Christ, I hope you see from our study this morning not a pastor who's trying to beat up on you, or a pastor who's trying to be mean. God forbid. That is not my intention. I hope what you've heard this morning is from the lips of Jesus a profound reality check of who we all are by nature. Jim Oreck says, If you're not a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of total depravity ought to make you see just how desperate your condition is. Perhaps you've lived under the delusion that you will enjoy living in sin until you're ready to get right with the Lord, and then you'll take care of things quickly and easily. After all, how hard can it be to just believe? Jim says, anyone who thinks that exercising faith is an easy matter has probably not made any significant efforts toward ever attempting it. Jeremiah 
13.23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Friends, if you're here this morning, I say to you with all the love that I can muster, your condition is dire. It's dire. Kids, if you have yet to come to Christ, your condition is dire. It's fearful. It's terrible. Don't play games with this. Don't think you're going to become a Christian when you get older. It's not within your power to do so. You don't have that. I mean, who do you think you are? Say, I'm going to continue to resist God and then hope to change later? Jeremiah 13, 23 is true. You, Ethiopian can't change his skin. Leper can't change his spots. You can't do good when you're accustomed to doing evil. You cannot make yourself believe what you think to be foolish when you want to. You cannot make yourself love light after loving darkness for a long time. You must be born again, but you can't give birth to yourself. You have as much control over your, the date of your spiritual rebirth as you do the date of your physical birth. How much control do you have over that? None. And so you don't over your spiritual birth either. So here's the point. I know this has been heavy, and here's why we start here. We start here because here's what God does in his grace. He points us to ourselves so that he might point us away from ourselves. That's what we're doing this morning. We're pointing to ourselves, not so that we'll say, oh, I got to get on this. I got to somehow fix this. No, we're pointing to ourselves so that we might be drawn out of ourselves and pointed away from ourselves so that we will see our need all over again for most of us, the grace of God. If we are to live eternally in God's presence, in God's favor, forgiven by God, reconciled to God, in God's family, God's got to do something about it. God has to intervene. God has to break us. God has to batter our heart. God has to capture our worship. We don't need a practical list of solutions to get our lives in order. We need a loving God to invade our chaos. We don't have it in us to come to God. We need God to come to us. It's hard to exaggerate the importance of admitting our condition to be this bad. If we think of ourselves as basically good or even less than totally at odds with God, our grasp of the work of redemption that Jesus Christ has accomplished will be stunted. It will be defective. But if we humble ourselves under this terrible truth, we will be in a position to see and appreciate the glory and wonder of the work of God discussed over the next four weeks. The aim of this series, get this, the aim of this series, brothers and sisters, is to deepen our experience of God's grace, not to depress, not to discourage, not to paralyze, none of that. Knowing the seriousness of our disease will make us all the more amazed and thankful to the greatness of our physician. Knowing the extent of our deep-seated rebellion will stun us as to the long-suffering grace and patience of God toward us. It's just like the beautiful diamond that gets set on the black, black, black backdrop. The darker the backdrop, the more beautiful the diamond. So let the backdrop be black, that all of God's grace might shine out in all of its incredible beauty. That's what we're after. We're about the diamond. The black backdrop is a means to the diamond. What we've been talking about this morning, you don't say, whoa, when you're, when you're shopping and, and interested and have a fiancé and, guys, you're going out to buy her that ring or take her shopping for it, which is what you should do, just trust your own instincts on that, get her involved in that. And then, so unless you're just a good man and you're cool like that, I got it. Um, but, if you, but you don't go into the jewelry store and you say, and then he sets out the diamond, you're like, woo, that bag dropped something else. Can I take that home? I don't need the diamond. I mean, they would look at you like you're crazy. Like, that's not the point. Exactly. We don't fixate on total depravity and say, ooh, man, that's good, that's sharp, that's hard-hitting. Pastor Mark really came after us. No, it's not the point. Take the black backdrop, put it down, put the diamond on it, hold the diamond up, prize the diamond, love the diamond, forget about the backdrop. Don't wholly forget about the backdrop. That's where the analogy breaks down. But the point is, the backdrop is there to help us appreciate Jesus and to help us love Christ and to see that, oh, my goodness, if my condition was that bad, God, God's incredible love, God's incredible grace. Some of you are sitting here and know that 
you've been, you, you, you look back over your past and you're so ashamed. You look back over your past and say, it was so full of depravity. I mean, all that stuff that he talked about, I mean, that marked my life for, je- for decades and decades and decades and decades and decades. And now later in my older years, I'm sitting here and I'm saying, I have an interest in God. I want my sins forgiven. You know what that is? That's the grace of God invading your life. That's him showing no matter how bad you are, no matter how much you think you've blown it, no matter how depraved you find yourself, no no matter how much of this spiritual resume fits your life resume, God can forgive. God will restore. God will show grace because it is not up to you. You don't have to perform well the rest of your life. You fall and collapse on Jesus and say, you're my only hope and God saves you for eternity. That's grace. That's grace. Let me close with a few quotes from some church from church history about men who got this and celebrated the greatness of God's grace. Let's start with Augustine. We'll go through these quickly. A thousand years before the Reformation, there was a North African theologian named Augustine, and he savored the sovereignty of God's grace in his own life. He was a wicked man growing up, a wicked boy. Read his confessions. But when God got a hold of him, here's what he said, I have no hope at all but in your great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. You do, not in, you do enjoin on us continence. That he says, God says, you command me to be self-restrained. And I wasn't. O oh, love that ever burns and is never quenched. O oh, charity, my God, enkindle me. You command self-restraint, but grant what you command and command what you will. That was a guy who understood, I need God's grace to live for God. Apart from God's grace, I've got nothing. Jonathan Edwards, again, great New England preacher and theologian, had an equally deep love for these truths. He wrote when he was 26 years old about the day he fell in love with the sovereignty of God. He says, there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrines of God's sovereignty from that day to this. God's absolute sovereignty is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as anything that I see with my eyes. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of his glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. George Whitfield, Edwards' contemporary, a man whom Edwards openly wept when George Whitfield preached in his church because of how much he loved the message that Whitfield was preaching. Whitfield was a great evangelist and said, I embrace the Calvinistic doctrine not because Calvin, but because Jesus Christ taught it to me. He pleaded with John Wesley, his friend, right, that we talked about in the beginning, not to oppose these doctrines, and he said the following to his brother and friend, John Wesley. I cannot bear the thoughts of opposing you, my friend. I hope we shall catch fire from each other and that there will be a holy emulation amongst us who shall most most debase man and exalt the Lord Jesus. Nothing but the doctrines of the Reformation can do this. All others leave free will in man and make him in part a savior to himself. I know Christ is all in all. Man is nothing. He hath the free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven. Till God worketh in him to will and to do his good pleasure. Oh, the excellency of the doctrine of election and the saint's final perseverance. I am persuaded till a man comes to believe and feel these important truths. He cannot come out of himself, but when convinced of these and assured of their application to his own heart, he then walks by faith indeed. Two more. George Mueller, a famous Christian, famous for leading orphanages in England. and He lived between basically the entire 1800s. And he had an amazing faith and prayed repeatedly for God's provision to take care of the orphans that he was called to serve. But not many of you know the theology that was underpinning his good works. And it kept him for the, almost the entirety of the 1800s serving. So in his mid-20s, in 1829, he had experience which he records as follows. Before this period, when I came to prize the Bible alone as my standard of judgment, I had been so much opposed to the doctrines of election and particular redemption and final persevering grace. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God, being made willing to have no glory of my own in the conversion of sinners, but to consider myself merely an instrument and being made willing to receive what the scripture said. I went to the word 
reading the New Testament from the beginning with a particular reference to these truths. To my great astonishment, I found the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths, and even those few shortly after, when I had examined and understood them, served to confirm me in the above doctrines. As to the effect which my belief in these doctrines had on me, I am constrained to state for God's glory that though I am still exceedingly weak, and by no means so dead to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life as I might be and as I ought to be. Yet by the grace of God, I have walked more closely with him since that period. My life has not been so variable, and I may say that I have lived much more for God than before. Finally, give Spurgeon the last word. Charles Spurgeon was a contemporary of George Mueller. He was a pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and the most famous preacher of his day and a Baptist at that. Not a bad deal. His preaching was powerful, to the winning of souls to Christ. And he recounted his discovery of the doctrines of grace at the age of 16. And he wrote the following. Born as all of us are by nature and Arminian, I still believe the old things I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received these truths in my own soul when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. One week night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how'd you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but when I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from, the doctrine I had not, from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Let's rise and worship and do the same. Let's ascribe our change wholly to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for the grace that was manifested in the sending of the Son of God, your very own Son, that you sent into the world to be the Savior of the world. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is another gift of grace, who comes into our lives and resurrects us with life-renewing power, raising us from spiritual death and defiance and dullness and doom and desperation and domination and gives us new life through the hearing of the gospel. Thank you for saving our lives. Thank you for calling us to yourself. For any who are in amongst us here this morning who have yet to be called out of your darkness into your marvelous light, do it now, dear God. Send your spirit into their lives. Cause them to see their need for you and to call upon the name of the Lord. For those of us who have been recipients of undeserved, unmerited grace, may we do exactly what Spurgeon did. Ascribe our change wholly to you. Say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's boast.